this is stuff that uh, dreams are made of. A lot of hard work has gone into it. You know, a lot of coaching, a lot of help, a lot of great friends, a lot of great teammates that are part of the journey. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky, you know, very blessed uh, to be in this position to call myself a, a Hall of Famer. Now, back to the William Hill Sportsbook Inside Silver Sevens with Cofield and Company. That was the voice of Charles Woodson. Talking yesterday at the Raider Tavern and Grill, a courtesy of the uh, RJ, Cassie Soto grabbing the video there. Adam Hill is here. It's Cofield, Silver Sevens. On a Thursday, we got VGK hockey coming up tonight. 77 cent beers during the game. That's Bud, Bud Light, Shock Top, and Michelob Ultra. Happy hour. It's beginning right now. 277 drinks. You got well drinks. You got beers now for that price. Get some shots. Let's do it, right? Silver Sevens, two different bars to hang out at. Corona Cantina and the Silver and Gold Bar adjacent to the William Hill Sportsbook. And, uh, you know, if there weren't enough to bet on with the NBA and the Final Four and the NHL, the Golden Knights, Major League Baseball's here. So we got a full slate of games today. So your head is spinning. And by the way, uh, back at this book, they've now got simulcast racing back, so horse racing is up. They've got a uh, designated section for the horse players, so it's back and better than ever, right? By the way, thanks to uh, Mike Greenberg and ESPN National for the audio. Greeny, which I think I screwed up the end of the hour, uh, Greeny is definitively Greeny is definitively wrong about Mac Jones. He should not be the number three pick. Not at all. It's time for The Three, presented by Nova Home Loans. Call now at 877-700-NOVA. So our buddy Mike Romalo over the Las Vegas Sun put together a list of uh, transfer targets for UNLV. Uh, So far, they had uh, whiffed. Uh, A couple of the guys on the list, at least uh, to my knowledge, have uh, committed in the last couple of days. One of them. And they're clearly looking for another point guard. They need depth just in case, you know, Marvin Coleman isn't back from his injuries or, you know, isn't 100%, can't play 35 minutes like he was. Uh, And it it hurt him this year badly, right? They were short a point guard because Donovan Yap wasn't ready, and now he's transferred out of the program, and David Jenkins Jr. isn't really a point guard and and had a tough time defensively at the point. So uh, Jamari Wheeler was a target from Penn State. Well, he's at Ohio State already. So... In my mind, that's transferring up. He had a lot of people pursuing him. A lot of people. Great defensive player. Uh, the really interesting one, and UNLV was in the final six. There's a kid playing Division II basketball the last three years named uh, Cam Martin at Missouri Southern. Averaged 25 points, nine rebounds, shot 45% from three. All right, you move up. I'm sure he's going to be a good player. I don't know if he's going to be 24-9. <laughs> um, but, yeah, UNLV was on the list with uh, Creighton and Stetson. Texas, but they don't, you know, until a couple hours ago, they didn't have a coach, yeah. Colorado State, and uh, he committed to Kansas. Wow. What? Yeah, Kansas was involved. So, I mean, uh, yeah, Kevin Kruger's going to, I mean, that's tough. You come in, you have, you have a, a, a target. San Diego State was also interested. You have a target like this, and then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, Kansas wants him, and he's going. Like, okay, all right. I mean, you got schools like Kansas and Texas, it's tough to, yeah. tough to overcome. They've won some of those battles over the years, but that's a tough one. Jordan McCabe is the uh, first guy to transfer in. He's, or he was at West Virginia. He just sent out the message a little while ago. Um, he's a you know borderline four star coming out of high school, um, mostly three star ratings. 
had good schools interested in him. And for some reason, the last couple of years fell out of favor. Had a good freshman year, averaged like six points a game, was playing a lot of minutes, 20-plus minutes. And then this last year he didn't play a whole lot, but he certainly has upside. He's got two years of eligibility left. So UNLV starts to rebuild the roster, and they hit a really key position of weakness in terms of depth. I think Marvin Coleman's a good player, but they need more point guards, so now they've got a point guard. Yeah, and they want, you know, I, I'm imagining they want to kind of recapture uh, some of what Jordan McCabe was earlier in his career. As you mentioned, he uh, hadn't been playing a whole lot. His his minutes had decreased each of his three seasons at West Virginia, but he had started about 50 games for Bob Huggins at West Virginia. That's, that, I mean, shows you he's got, you know, plenty of talent. Uh, and he'll probably play defense coming from Bob Huggins' system. I'm sure he learned a thing or two over the last couple of years. So I think a good addition for UNLV. He's not the kind of player that's going to blow people away and you know get people dancing in the streets that he committed. But uh, I think that you know he he adds definitely a an element for this team and you know just shows that they are out there already working hard to bring people in. Baseball. We had a game canceled today. Oh no, we did. It's still not over. Uh, it's, positive- it's over in Texas. What do you mean? Texas is having 100% attendance on Monday, so pandemic's over oh, there. Oh, yeah. Well, pandemic yeah. is over there. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, but, yeah, the Nats had some issues, so they postponed the game today between the Nats and the Mets. Mets get a little more room to celebrate uh, what they believe is a gigantic signing. I- I'm mixed on this one, on Francisco Lindor. I'm happy he got his money. I actually I was saying last night, Mets are so pathetic and desperate to get star players because no one wants to play in New York. That's been proven. All of this crap from New York sports fans and New York media where it's like, you know, this is the place to be. Well, apparently not because no one wants to come there. George Springer turned the Mets down. No one wants – I mean, what, what major free agent has ever, con, like, really considered the Knicks? They always think they're in this yeah. mix for – and they're like, yeah, we're not going, okay? We're not going. Um, Yankees can get some guys. And obviously, like, the team of New York now, the Brooklyn Nets, my Nets, <laughs> they're a draw. But for the Knicks and the Mets, especially the Mets, but both, they're a nightmare. They've got like 20 years of negativity around their franchises. And I love this standoff where, um, you know, there are people who are like, if Lindor doesn't sign this, he's completely blowing it. <laughs> and he just he stared them down, and he got another $20 million. I think he should have got he got $341 million. He should have gone for 400 right? The guy's a billionaire. Try it. Now, on the Mets side, I don't love the signing. No, by the uh, way. A 10-year deal for a, a 5'11", 180-pound infielder who did fade a bit last year. I mean, I – I mean, I could see by the third year of this deal, him being a 280-2020 guy, and you're paying $34 million for it. By the way, Lindor got his money. What is this, 2018? He secured the bag, Steve. That's, My bad. That's, My bad. I know. That's, bad. that's what happened. Uh, these, yeah. guys, they, these guys tried to push me to, uh, put me to the test yesterday, trying to get me on uh, Wu-Tang, busting my horns. <laughs> I'm sure you had no idea. No, you did great. Well, the funny thing is, I'm like oh. I'm referencing like like the bag in 2021. Uh, 2021 has anything to do with Wu Tang from freaking 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. Like I thought that was being up to date. That's good. Um, I I think I think you're right. This this is the kind of deal that in a couple of years could look really foolish. For right now, I mean, Lindor is a very 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 good player at a very important position. That uh, he was going to get paid. Are and, you better off just waiting for Carlos Correa and paying him the same money? I mean, Come is, on, is he going to know what pitches are coming? He was fine last year. He was fine. But, I, I mean, I, you I think Lindor is really good. Well, Ty, Toronto didn't worry about George Springer. It's true. <laughs> and tip pitches. They, they, gave, they gave him. Wait, no. He secured the bat. Secured the bat. Yeah. 
God. You don't give someone the bag. I love strategy in baseball. It's it's the best. Sorry, I I was like, Clinton Kershaw is getting bombed. Why are they keeping him in the game to hit in the sixth inning? And then of course he singles to start a rally. It's it's just it's brilliant. Uh, it's the right move, goes. man. You got to hit. Of course. Results based thinking. Bring it let back. Let Baseball's let here. <laughs> Results based thinking. And then Mookie Betts drives one into the, into the alley. You could have a starter go five innings, twenty seven straight starts. He's pitching well through five. They take him out. The reliever blows up the game. They're like, why don't you keep him in? Because we never do. Back to your Blake Snell that's, anger. Right. right? That's not how they play. we don't do that. That's not how they play. You should have. Let Kershaw hit because he's a good hitter. Right. I, I, I think I point, someone pointed out a great one. This is, uh, you know, I'm not even going. Go. You going to go baseball nerd? No, no, no. I was going to go something on the NCAA tournament. It's a broken record. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the shortstop class next year is amazing. I mean, the Mets, I call the Mets desperate. They, I mean, they, I think they feel desperate right now that they need a star. And plus they traded for him, so you don't want to, you know, lose the guy, but I mean, if they really played it patiently, there are a bunch of great shortstops available next year. Yeah, I, but I, I think Lindor is really good. Middle infielders. Yeah, I, I think he's really good. And so I, I get your point. Like, there could be other guys, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe there's a guy that you'd prefer in that class. Like, I don't know that there's anybody that's significantly better than Lindor, uh, and they've got, him, they've got him already. And I think there is an element to, hey, you traded for him. Like, make the commitment. And, you know, the fans are going to lose it if you don't, uh, if you let him at some point get away. Uh, and who knows? Maybe he has an unbelievable season and he outplays that and you would have had to pay more for him. Did you get a chance to uh, get down to the south side of town? It's actually it's your side of the town. My side of town. Right there, right right across from Sohi. And check out the uh, new Raiders bar. I didn't do the official party. I stopped okay. in, checked it out. Oh, there was an official party? Yesterday, yeah. Well, media... Were you guys out there with video trying to get people? Like it, like it's a charity event? Oh, like on the red carpet? No. We, we got a lot of those. No, I mean, get them for masking and all that stuff. Oh, no. The enemy of the Raiders. Somehow, the enemy of the people. Somehow, the enemy uh, of the anti-masker. Yeah, somehow when Darren Waller does foundations now, we don't get the information. <laughs> no, it's not, no. Not, you're, not on the, no. you're not on the top of the list. All right. No. It doesn't happen. So, your thoughts? On the restaurant? Yeah. It's a cool concept, and it's right there out by the practice facility. It's where the Raiders stay, uh, game weeks. Uh, it's you know it's a perfect location for them to be right down the street. It's a good situation uh, for the M to kind of have that uh, connection, and uh, I think it's going to be a cool place to hang out. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of uh, Raiders dignitaries there quite often. I know uh, you know Charles Woodson was there, and there, he had some things to say, but also his wines are on, are on the wine list. Like I mean, th- there's a lot of connections for – what some of the former Raiders are doing in the business world and what they're doing over at the restaurant. Do we have a beef? Oh, yeah. We have an old-timer, youngin' beef? We got a 24 beef. So what's the deal? So Charles Woodson, as I mentioned, is, uh, is out at the restaurant opening, and uh, he was having a conversation with Cassie Soto from, from the paper, and she asked him if – because he was talking about some of the former Raiders and how – it's so cool to be a part of this organization. One of the one of his favorite things about being a Raider is that when he was a player, you know, like Willie Brown would be hanging out in the defensive back meetings and, and kind of sharing his advice. And, you know, Fred Belitnikoff would be out there working with the receivers, even though he wasn't a coach. He was just he was there to kind of lean on. So the natural follow up that Cassie asked was, Well, Jonathan Abram wears twenty four, he's a defensive back, you're going to the Hall of Fame. How much has he reached out to you to kind of talk about, you know, to get advice and to, to kind of share your wisdom? Which is like which is 
that's not supposed to be like a probing, hey, there's trouble here question. That That is... It's not a gotcha question. Yeah, and I'm not ripping Cassie for the question. Like, that that should not turn into anything. No. But it did. It shouldn't turn into anything. Did it? Until Charles Woodson drops the... No, he hasn't reached out. We haven't, you know, we haven't talked. He hasn't reached out. And he's like, I'm not just going to, you know, call him out of nowhere and be like, you know, here's what, here's what you should be doing, bro. He's like, I'm going to let him reach out in his own time if he wants to talk to me. That's a problem. Oh, my God. Is it? Well, it is for some people because a lot of people immediately started attacking Jonathan Abram on Twitter. And people were retweeting the clip, tagging Jonathan Abram on Twitter and saying, what are you doing? Reach out. Woodson's the GOAT. You should be, you should be speaking to him. This is unacceptable. And kind of going after him. Which prompted Jonathan Abram's agent to then respond to Cassie's tweet. Oh, boy. And say, uh, got to tell you, Charles, he's tried. And he posted screenshots of several Instagram DMs from Abram no. to Woodson that went unreplied. Do you think Woodson just didn't see him? A lot of people don't use their DMs very often. And that's, that, was my, that was my point, and I, I wrote up the story today. And Everyone's said, not a DM guy. There's multiple things. Some people don't check their DMs, right. as you said. Right. Some people get a ton of them yeah. and, and wouldn't, wouldn't know. Some people don't run their own accounts. That, too. And so I don't think you can automatically just say, well, hey, he's tried. You know, you're wrong. You've seen these, and you just didn't respond. It's very possible Charles Woodson never saw these, and he didn't respond for that reason. So I don't, I don't think it's, you know, drama, drama, and, and there's this whole beef out there. I think Jonathan Abram probably said, hey, I've, I've tried. I wanted to reach out. I wanted to speak to him. I didn't get a response, so I'm not going to do that anymore. And Charles Woodson was like, I wonder why this guy's never reached out to me. Oh, maybe I should check my folder. Nova Home Loans brings you the three. It's a refi raid at Nova Home Loans. With interest rates at all-time lows, now's the time to talk to your local Nova loan officer. 877-700-NOVA. Oh, Mike Rapp, you're a rat. Why'd you rat him out? This is not good, fellas. This is not Law & Order SVU. What the f*** is you talking about, rat? I'm putting you on blast, goofy. Are you stupid? Do you smoke Kevin Durant talking to me like that? Now, back to the William Hill Sportsbook Inside Silver Sevens with Cofield and Company. You know, I want to get into another KD social media battle. This time it's with Michael Rappaport, but I've got such Rappaport fatigue, I can't do it. I can't do it. He just, just beefs he, with everybody. I mean, he just he just he lost his stupid defamation case with Barstool. Um, and it's just like he's, he just comes up with something new to remain relevant. It's just the, the, the act is so stupid and old. He seems like your kind of guy. Nah. It's the same bit all the time. Is he a Yankees guy, though? I have no, I don't care. <laughs> nah, he was the one, he was the one like two weeks ago where he's like, Jersey this and Jersey that. And because the, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, don't, I, I agree. I, the, uh, whenever it was when the, uh, the park police at Sandy Hook in New Jersey were busting the horns of Bruce Springsteen, like, I agree, but then he was like taking shots at you know my home state, and it's just like like the whole thing is just. So now now we've gotten to the bottom of it. Is well, anti, that's part, but it's part of it. But it's the same thing every time with the, the cussing. I mean, he did he did uh, DJT. It was like every day for two years. 
calling him orange this and dumbass this with Trump. And it's like, all right, dude, like spin to something else. Well, I mean, I, like you're beating a dead horse. I, I think you're right. I think the there is a content machine out there that just, you know, they love him because he'll give them something almost every day. But at times you're just like, uh, does it really matter? Does it mean anything? I've, I've never really understood why he is a celebrity. I don't either. Because he'll do this. But this is his career now. Yeah. And we've just done three minutes on it. So he got us. I, Can we just go back to talking about the, the bloody sneakers with the Satan stuff all over it? I'm more interested in that with little Nas X. Did you like the video? I did like the video, yes. It's, it's good. It's very, very uh, artistic. Better or... If you're someone who gets offended, more or less offensive than WAP. Because I love that video. I know you do. Um, it's it. I, that's actually that was actually my comparison when I first saw it. Of like, I think there's there's people that are offended by both, obviously. Uh, but I know that there's a lot of people that were pro WAP that are anti Lil Nas X video, and there's really only one explanation. <laughs> They're homophobic, clearly. Ah, okay. Haven't we? Aren't we done with the? Aren't we done with the outrage over videos and music? Like what? Should 2021. Be. We should be. We're not. It's like people love getting outraged and angry about things. Yeah, yeah it's like come on, Elvis and his hips, and we got the Everly Brothers and Wake Up Little Susie and whatever. Alice Cooper drinking blood. Ozzy's biting bats heads off. Well, the freaking Marilyn Manson. I mean, I just, didn't the Beatles know, we, like we've seen it all enough? Didn't the Beatles go full Matt Gates? Like she was just seventeen. You know what I mean? That's that? a Beatles song, right? Who was the guy who was like just screaming at the top of his lungs about a sixteen-year-old Benny? Was it Benny Mardones? Crank up the Commodore sixty-four and get us some songs. Where he was just he was just just yelping in pain. It, it was like there's nothing outrageous anymore. All right. Little Nas X got a rear naked, rear naked choke and went too far on Satan and snapped his neck. He was twerking in front of him to set him up for the kill. Eh, who cares? Yes, it's wet. All right? It's a body part. All right? The, the, you know, Megan Thee Stallion and, and uh, Cardi B are having a good time. All right? I don't, I don't like your use Benny. Your, use your credit card and whatever else you got to use in the song. I don't like I, your uh, Benny slander. As, as, was that I, his name? Yes, it, right? it is. Oh, as, as friends with his son. Wait, what? Oh, yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. I didn't know you had you had a, a freaking touch with greatness, a connection with greatness. Well, I actually didn't know it was his son until he died. Oh, okay. And then I, then the you know his son on social media was posting like, you know, love you, dad, miss you, dad. And I was like, that's your dad? Holy cow. I had no idea. I think you know him too, actually. He's a... Really? He's a he's an MMA guy. He's, a, he's, he's in the MMA world. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. The NFL draft. <laughs> We need to talk edge rushers, and let's talk about the latest in terms of rumors around the draft, especially the uh, pick swap as we bring in our draft expert. We do it every Thursday. Austin Gale is an expert for Pro Football Focus. Anytime the Golden Knights are on TV, watch the game at the William Hill Sportsbook inside Silver 7s and grab your 77-cent Bud Light bottles. Cofield and Company is live at the William Hill Sportsbook at Silver 7's Hotel and Casino. Did I go off the deep end there with the uh, frustrated with outrage? Everyone stop getting outraged. All right. Musicians have done it all. 
for years. Yeah, we've been outraged about music. Today's a big day of outrage. We were outraged that Greeny that uh, Greeny wasn't outraged about Mac Jones possibly going number three to the Niners. Did you get what I was saying? I do. I think so. Austin Gale is with us. Or uh, trades, people moving in and out of the top ten. And uh, we have a chance to break down edge rushers today as we always go a uh, little deep diving on a position. He works for Pro Football Focus. Austin, how you doing, buddy? Doing great, man. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, if I were a Niner fan, I'd be I, cautiously optimistic, excited. I don't even know what that means. But uh, what are they going to do at three? Please tell me this isn't all to move up and get Mac Jones. I mean, from what I'm hearing right now, league sources are saying Mac Jones is who Kyle Shanahan, John Come Lynch, on. and the San Francisco 49ers are targeting at number three overall. However, however, yes. Yes. obviously, if I'm, if I'm in that position, I'm looking at a Justin Fields of Ohio State or Trey Lance of North Dakota State. That's where I think the better quarterback prospects are. However, you look at the type that Kyle Shanahan has bred in his time in the NFL. It's a Kirk Cousins. It's a Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, he's propped up even C.J. Bethard and Nick Mullins. So I'm not super surprised that you know, Kyle Shanahan, who is matching tattoos with Chris Sims, and Chris Sims having Mac Jones ahead of Justin Fields and Trey Lance, I wouldn't be surprised if he sees Mac Jones as that better prospect. San Francisco 49ers fans, obviously, are going to have to start looking at Mac Jones maybe a little bit better than uh, the, the media and fans have seen before. Well, my, my problem isn't with Shanahan liking Mac Jones and believing that that's the case, because I think that's definitely possible. But would he really think that he'd have to trade up that far to make that move to get him? Yeah, that's my take, too. It's like, hey, you can love Mac Jones, but don't be overconfident in your evaluation. Look at the consensus opinion from draft analysts and scouts and front offices. He's consensus, the fifth-best quarterback in this class, a guy that's been available as low as the back end of round one in some mock drafts, some respected analysts like Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, Daniel Jeremiah. The fact that they feel like they need to trade up two first-round picks and a future third-round pick to go up from 12 to 3, to go up and grab Mac Jones, I think, is being too confident in their own evaluation. However, there's always the fact that this could be smoke. Them, you know, Kyle Shanahan going to Alabama's Pro Day instead of Justin Fields, it all could be smoke. Maybe they're locking into a Justin Fields of Ohio State. That's who I feel like would be the best quarterback available. Because right now, I see it as Trevor Lawrence to the Jags at 1, and then Zach Wilson of BYU to the Jets at 2. There is not a coincidence that the San Francisco 49ers traded up the same day as BYU's Pro Day. When all 32 teams were presented in Provo, Utah, at BYU's Pro Day, San Francisco got the tip that Zach Wilson was going to, and they felt like they could go get their guy at number three. So wouldn't it make more sense? I mean, we're harping on this situation we don't know yet, but wouldn't it make more sense if they were going to keep Garoppolo to go with the project like Trey Lance? I believe so, and I think that's when you – so you look at some of the Kyle Shanahan quotes that we've seen in recent years. He said that you aim at the quarterback position to go grab a 98th percentile person on the planet at the quarterback position and hope to elevate those traits. If Matt Jones is 98th percentile human on the planet, maybe I'm in the 90th percentile because I do feel like Trey Lance, Justin Fields, these guys that are legitimate athletes, legitimate size, have more arm talent than what Matt Jones brings to the table are better prospects. Does Matt Jones have a higher floor? Absolutely. Very accurate with the football. A good decision maker has played a ton of good college football in a very tough conference, the SEC. And I think he's done it with a good supporting cast, but still played a lot of good football. Justin Fields, a little bit up and down. Trey Lance only averaging, what, 18.3 dropbacks per game in 2019, playing one game in 2020 against Central Arkansas. There's concerns there as well, but chase the ceiling. You know, you look at the four, four of the five highest graded quarterbacks, according to PFF, played in AFC or NFC championships games this past year. The only quarterback that didn't was Deshaun Watson, and we know the plague that's been 
Houston right now and the reason they didn't show up there. I do think you need to chase the ceiling at the quarterback position. Go get a guy that can be a top-five quarterback in the NFL. And if it's my opinion, I think Justin Fields and Trey Lance have a higher percentage chance to be a top-five quarterback in the NFL than Mac Jones does. We want, to get, we want to get into some of the edge rushers in this draft, but uh, I just wanted to ask real quick. We've, we're seeing a lot of pro days right now, as you mentioned. Has there been anybody the last week or so that's truly surprising? We've seen some great numbers, some great performances. You know, Jamar Chase, we saw Rashad Bateman run really well. Has there been anybody that's truly surprising that may uh, kind of alter draft boards a little bit? I, I do think there was some surprise uh, in the cornerback conversation. Patrick Sertan running as fast as he did was a real surprise. People put him in that situation where the biggest concern or the biggest question mark was his long speed. But running in the low 4-4s was really good for Patrick Sertan. And the same could be said for J.C. Horn, the South Carolina cornerback. I think you're going to see Patrick Sertan of Alabama be the first cornerback off the board. I don't think he makes it past the Dallas Cowboys at 10. And then... You have J.C. Horn available to the Philadelphia Eagles at 12, the Arizona Cardinals at 16. The bigger thing here is that Caleb Farley, the Virginia Tech corner, who's rumored to have been running in the 4-2 since high school, a legitimate athlete, a guy with a ton of good production in 2019, potentially falling in the first round because of these off-field, not off-field, injury concerns. He's had two back surgeries in the last 24 months. That's obviously a concern. Didn't play in all of 2020 due to an opt-out in due to COVID-19 concerns. I think you're going to see Sertan then Horn and potentially Farley at the back end of the first round or even day two. Austin Gale, Pro Football Focus, getting into a lot of draft talk here with us. Uh, we're really breaking it down as we count down to that draft. Well, uh, we want to talk edge rushers, and I do want to start at the top. Is there any question right now who the top edge rusher is in this draft? All there is is questions, man. I mean, I think you ask any analyst right now, it's a different person at the top of edge ranking. Some people see it's Quiddy Pay, like PFF sees Quiddy Pay of Michigan as the top edge defender in this class. Some people are still clinging to the hopes that are Gregor Rousseau of Miami, Florida, as the number one edge defender in this class. Some people like Jason Owe, Jalen Phillips, Aziz Ojulari. There's so many good edge defenders in this class that don't necessarily have elite production at the collegiate level to a point where you don't know who's going to be the best guy in the NFL. So many projects, so many guys with legit athleticism, legit length, all the measurables you look for from the edge defender position, but none of the production. I think Azizo Jolari of Georgia is probably the most productive edge defender in this class, along with Carlos Basham Jr. or Boogie Basham from Wake Forest. But you're chasing traits in the first round. You're chasing length. You're chasing burst. You're chasing change of direction ability. And that's where Jason Owe pops off the film. That's where Jalen Phillips pops off the film. I think every single team in the NFL is going to have a, a different order for edge defender rankings in this draft. Uh, you mentioned him in Carlos Basham, and I want to get to him only because uh, the Raiders made some waves by uh, having defensive coordinator Gus Bradley at his pro day. Uh, a lot of talk around here about what they were looking at. Where could he fall? Because I, I, I think first round you're looking potentially offensive line, you would think. Could Basham fall to the second round? Yeah, I think the Las Vegas Raiders are locking into offensive tackle in the first round, whether that's Kevin Jenkins of Oklahoma State, who had an absolutely stellar pro day today, or Christian Derrissaw of Virginia Tech. Those two tackles, I think, will be available to the Raiders at 17, and I think because of the glaring need at offensive tackle with Trent Brown obviously being traded away, I think they lock into tackle at 17. In round two, Carlos Basham Jr. could be made available, but, I mean, at 274 pounds, what he did from a change of direction perspective, the short the short shuttle and the three cone, he could be a top-of-day-two type of guy. I think they'd be surprised if Carlos Basham Jr. was available in the middle of the second round. That's how good Basham Jr. is. And I'll tell you why Gus Bradley was there. Gus Bradley loves more, loves more than anything 
positional versatility along the defensive line. Bastion could play along the edge. He could play inside. He could play head up on the tackles, head up on the guards. I think Bastion Jr. is a really good fit for what Gus Bradley wants to do defensively. Uh, who's You mentioned some of the names at the top. It's kind of the rotating cast uh, that we've heard in, in whatever order they might fall in. Uh, but is there anybody that could be a spoiler, anybody outside uh, that group that might sneak into uh, maybe a high pick? I, I do think right now the sleeper or the spoiler to be the first edge off the board is Jalen Phillips of Miami, Florida, a guy that originally committed to UCLA as a five-star defensive end prospect from California. But then UCLA's coaching staff told him he's one concussion away from being out of football for the rest of his life. He obviously decides to retire from football, pursues, I think, a rental agency job, and then comes back to play for Miami, Florida, still with that concussion problem, still with those injury concerns, but an absolute freakish athlete. There are going to be teams that see Jalen Phillips as the best player that are willing to take that injury risk, willing to say, hey, we understand the concussion concerns, we understand the injury concerns, but we know he's the best pure edge rusher in this class on film. Austin, we appreciate it. Uh, make sure you get up to PFF.com. The draft guide is live. And I know you guys have big plans uh, all during the draft with some uh, some live programming as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. During the draft, we should be live on YouTube and Twitter all three days of the draft. Good deal. Thank you, Austin. Of course. Thank you. There you go. Austin Gale. We'll come back. We're going to talk to uh, Mark McMillan. He's got a, a great guest lined up for us. Is uh, You know, we're talking to all these quarterbacks, and I wanted to talk to a quarterback expert. Chris Miller is actually a high school coach up in uh, Oregon at Westland. You know Westland. Uh, but, you know, a really good uh, school for athletes, and he played with the Falcons. It was, he was, the guy was on his way to, I think, being an elite quarterback in the league and just had a bunch of freaking injuries, ACLs, lots of concussions. But, you know, you remember the two legit-to-quit team, they had all those stars. The quarterback of that team was Chris Miller. So Mark and Chris are on the way. Visit Cofield's Corner on LVSportsNetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews. Today's conversation with Mark McMillan is presented by Weed Cellars. Hit WeedCellars.com for the best in wine, bourbon, and beer. ESPN Las Vegas, we got Mark McMillan on. As always, he uh, hooks us up with one of his uh, NFL friends, and we got a really good interview here with Chris Miller playing the NFL with the Falcons, with the Rams, with the Broncos, coaching high school, coaching the pros. Uh, big, big time uh, fan of your game, obviously, coming into the league. Uh, having to face you as a young pup, man, you were you were the uh, the veteran back in the day. What was it like uh, for you coming out of Oregon back then and being drafted in the first round? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Mac and Steve. It's an honor to be on your show, and it's good catching up, man. It's been a minute. So, you know, when I came out, uh, I was a first-round draft pick with the Atlanta Falcons back in 1987, and that happened to be a strike year. So there were about probably 13 or 14 of us first-round picks that we didn't even sign till Halloween night that year. So, wow. uh, you know, I got a little taste of it during the spring and such with a few workouts, but then we had to stay away from the facility. We couldn't train with the guys or anything. So um, then we signed Halloween. And when I signed, I think the Falcons, we were two and seven at that time. And, you know, the, it wasn't that first exposure of excitement and, and hope, you know, and, and those type of things when we got there. So I was like, dang, this is what the NFL is about. Huh? You know, and then a few games went on and, and the, the players started having their cars running <laughs> with the bag packed, ready to get out of town <laughs> when the season was done. But so I got I played against the uh, L.A. Rams in L.A. It was my first game. I think the third to last game of the year I played the second half. 
played pretty well there. Then we played the 49ers, got beat uh, 34-13, I think, down there. And, you know, threw a touchdown, threw three picks, and Ronnie Lott was run all over the defense, offense, <laughs> let alone what Ronnie Lott was doing. And so it was, it was kind of an interesting first-year exposure. It really was just kind of a, a test run, if you will, a small sample size. And I kind of look at year two, 1988, as my, my true rookie year. Man, after you, you threw out a name right there, a classic. Um, I, I'm on, like on an Instagram live too. My man, uh, he called himself Bump and Run. Eric Davis. He was like, "Tell uh, Chris, I, he said, tell Chris, I appreciate the INT he threw my way." I know. I'm sure I hit ED. He and I actually do. We do football <laughs> university camps, FBU camps together. And, you know, he's a big dude. He's a big corner. I'm sure I threw him one that day. I was pretty. <laughs> Tell ED, it was my pleasure, man. Yeah. Now, you, you, you talk, obviously, you guys played the 49ers twice, uh, you know, playing with the Falcons, uh, you know, back in the era with Prime and Dre Rising and all those characters that you guys have. What was it like uh, being in the locker room around all that? When I first got there, Atlanta had three winning seasons in 23 years. So it was kind of a struggling organization. There wasn't even a general manager at the time. And, you know, the five Smith family kind of ran the draft and ran the whole deal. And, so it wasn't a top-notch organization, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, you know football management and such. At that point in time, great family and things, but I think they were kind of trying to figure things out on the run. And, and San Francisco was the benchmark at that time. They, uh, you know, had Bill Walsh and Eddie DiBartola Jr. and the DiBartola family, and they were run very, very well. So they were kind of the pinnacle of, of what you try to pattern yourself after. And not to mention they had players like Joe Montana and Steve Young and Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lodd and all those guys. So uh, it was great competition. You know, it was always fun to go out to Candlestick because I was a West Coast guy. So whenever we went to play L.A. or, or San Fran, I had big groups of, you know, fans that would come down for the game. I remember I think I got 65 tickets one year for San Fran and we beat them down there. Uh, 34 Yeah, beat them down there 34-13 in 1989, one of their Super Bowl years. That was kind of cool. But, uh, you know, it was a great experience. The NFC West at that time was a stout division. Uh, the New Orleans Saints were tough. Mm-hmm. Defense, uh, great defenses for years. The Rams were tough then when, with Jim Everett and Kevin Green and that whole crew. And then San Francisco, of course, was awesome. So, we were kind of trying to, to inch our way up at that point in time. We got Chris Miller with us, former NFL quarterback. Mark McMillan's on the horn, ESPN Las Vegas. Was that Niners team or were those Niners teams the best teams you faced? They definitely were at that time. Um, you know, they were head and shoulders, I think, above people talent-wise. They had great depth. Uh, you know, the genius Bill Walsh was a tremendous coach. I think he was kind of ahead of his time in the NFL at that point in time. So, And their defenses were tough. I mean, they had outstanding defensive players, good defensive back, good schemes, and you know, when you have leadership back there like Ronnie Lott and some of those veterans that kind of held that group to a high standard, um, they were kind of the pinnacle of, of that uh, that era. And then we played the Washington Redskins uh, in the NFC Championship, and they, that's the year they beat the Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl. And they had been to a couple of Super Bowls, and I think that was their third win with Joe Gibbs. Um, so they were also a really strong team uh, organization in the, the NFC at that point in time. You know, Joe Gibbs is a guy who's not discussed as the best coach of all time. But when you think about it, like we're in an era now, I think we've all come to the realization that to win a Super Bowl, like you better have a really good quarterback. And this is nothing against the quarterbacks, the Redskins. Check Well, at the time they were Redskins, now they're football team. You got to watch what I say. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you think about the quarterbacks he won with, right? Like, oh, you have to have a great quarterback to win a Super Bowl. He won with Joe Theismann, Mark Rippon, and Doug Williams. Like those guys at the time were good quarterbacks. He did that three times. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to win the Super Bowl with three different guys. I think thing about Joe Gibbs, you know, he he had the quintessential work ethic back then. He was so disciplined. 
you know, he'd sleep in the office, I guess, sometimes. He might have been kind of the one that originated that before the John Gruden's and those guys. Um, so he put in countless hours and, you know, just did a tremendous job. And, and th- what those teams had was great offensive lines. They ran the ball very well and they had good defenses. They had very good defenses. But, you know, when Doug Williams played, I mean, he probably had one of the most prolific Super Bowls ever in history, other than Steve Young when he throws six touchdowns against the San Diego Chargers back in the day. But Doug played fantastic. Joe Theismann's friend of mine, he played great. He wasn't super flashy, yeah. but he ran an offense well and didn't didn't kill you. And then uh, Mark Rippon balled that year. He had a monster year. He and I and Troy Aikman were the three Pro Bowl guys that year. So Rip lit it up. They had the three Amigo wide receivers that were balling. They had a great run game and a really good defense. They were, they were stout that year. Mark, what do you remember about that Falcons team in terms of you know, they, it got kind of glitzy and you know, too legit to quit, and it was a lot of fun. What do you remember, Mark, as, as the opposition? <laughs> you know, they had some weapons that we had to worry about. You know, obviously, you know, uh, everybody was focused on, you know, MC Hammer on the sideline. You know, you got primetime doing this stuff. You got Dre Rising with his mystique. Uh, you know, they had some really good players. Scott Case, I know he was a, he was a safety that – a name that, you know, kind of forgotten who was a really good uh, free safety, you know, safety. Yeah, Scott, Scott was tough. He was special. Yeah, a big dude. And we knew as our defense, like, you know, we can pack our lunch and, and play anybody, but we knew facing that offense that we were going to have uh, to get after him, you know, obviously get after the quarterback first because Chris was a was a guy and, and, and the weapons that he had around him were like, you know, I'm telling EA, you know, Eric, I was like, yo, we got to be on our game because at any minute they're going to go deep. You know, it ain't, it ain't, they ain't trying to just think of the Chris likes the long ball. You know, I think, I think we got you a couple times in Atlanta, too, my brother. We got you when we opened the Georgia Dome and then once in the Fulton County Stadium. And then uh, we snuck one out there in Philly, too, on the vet. I hit Michael Haynes down the middle on a late touchdown. Can't remember what year it was. So, yeah, Mike Haynes, that's another guy. You know, oh, I, he could roll. He was the second fastest man in the NFL behind Daryl Green. So, and a lot of people didn't know that. And you had an opportunity yeah. to play against him and play with him, uh, with the, with the Saints. And Mike yeah. was quiet, didn't say anything, but all he did was just run by people. Chris Miller's with us. Mark McMillan is here. Chris, how are you doing health wise? Uh, I mean, obviously, you had a, a real crap run at the, you know, towards the end of your career with a bunch of concussions. It was like five concussions and in 14 months. You also had to deal with multiple yeah. knee injuries. Are you, are you good now? Yeah, I appreciate you asking, man. I, uh, you know, back in our day, I was actually thinking about it. You know, we, we would get dinged or get a concussion or whatever, and we just kind of shake it off and nobody would talk about it. You'd kind of sw- swipe it under the rug. And I remember we're 4 0 when I'm in St. Louis. We played the Chicago Bears, and I was actually NFC Offense Player of the Week, had a good game that night. But I took an elbow in the temple from Vincent Smith about early in the fourth quarter and uh, knocked me out. I was kind of laying on the ground 45 seconds or a minute, just kind of out. And went to the facility on Monday. Everything was, I was treated like nothing happened. Everything was normal. Went to practice Wednesday, had a funky week of practice. We played the 49ers at home the next Sunday, and I threw four picks in the first half. And I felt like I was playing in a, uh, a uh, subway, you know, where everything was moving fast and I was just kind of going slow motion. Thank goodness Rich Brooks, my coach, took me out. Otherwise, I probably would have broken the all-time record of picks of seven, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, I had my, my, I had my share of concussions. Uh, you know, I had the two knee injuries in 92, 93 and, and then started banging my head on the turf. I signed with the Rams to play on grass in Anaheim. I grew up a Rams fan. Then next thing you know, we moved to St. Louis. And we're playing on a dome and turf, you know, and it's concrete and hard. And um, so I, I dealt with that for a while. But man, I feel good now. I'm blessed. Um, you know, a lot of guys who played 
maybe in earlier times have had a lot more severe issues than I have. So I, I feel good. My body feels good. I got a new right hip uh, in the latter part of October this last year. Got my elbow cleaned up in December. And Mac, I'm getting new golf clubs here soon, and I'm gonna let's I'm, go. Let's go. Well, I'm gonna I, have a golf resurgence in 2021. So well, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want you to have an excuse if we beat you. Like, man, I'm only playing with the. I got the Bo Jackson hip. I want you to eat you know, <laughs> <laughs> It's my right hip, and it's amazing. I can put my sock on now. I can tie my shoes. My day to day comfort. Anyone that's thinking about has a bad hip that's thinking about it, I urge you to do it because the relief has been tremendous. So. So what, what do you, what is a, you know, obviously I saw, you know, you coached in the NFL, you coach in high school. What is the difference that you see uh, from the quarterback position with all these camps and combines that's going on and, and, you know, the technique that you see now as a quarterback position, what is, what is some of the things that you try to teach these young guys that, that you coach? That's a great question. You know, I, I was with the Arizona Cardinals for three years as a quarterback coach. So I got to work with uh, Matt Liner. Derek Anderson and Kurt Warner in his final year of his career. So it was really enjoyable to be around Kurt and see what type of professional he was and how he approached it and how cerebral he was. And and then I was with June Jones this last spring as the offense coordinator with the XFL Houston Roughnecks, which was awesome. So June was my coach in Atlanta for three years. So it was nice to be with him and, and reconnect with him. But in terms of high school guys, I'm back at Westland High School up in Westland, Oregon, which is right in Portland area. And I train, I'm probably privately trained about 10, 11 QBs uh, this fall and winter, you know, with the, with COVID going on. Guys are just looking to do football and get out and train. And I've got a couple of pro guys that I train as well. So, you know, I think nowadays I actually feel sorry for parents because these kids, you know, they're concerned about the offer. Can I get an offer? Will they offer me at this point? Will they offer me after my junior year? But what happens if I'm only a starter my senior year? Can I get an offer during that senior season? And, you know, that really kind of drives the show. And, and so it's really it's really ramped up and amped up private training, privatized training. But I can tell you this, the private training, when these kids get coached well and they get coached by somebody like yourself or Kevin Ross or myself or mm-hmm. whatever, they're getting tricks of the trade and things that normal people don't get because we played at the highest level you know, against the best competition and learned it as coaches as well. So, you know, I, I try to teach my guys, man, being a quarterback, being an athletic guy, being spontaneous, being active. Um, I call it real ball. Gary Kubiak called it real ball when he was my offense coordinator with the Denver mm-hmm. was in 99. And, and uh, too many quarterback coaches, I think, are, are trying to put quarterbacks in a box and they're trying to make them kind of into robots. Hey, mm-hmm. throw it like this. I want you to hold it like this. Everyone I train throws the ball like this. Well, you know, being a quarterback is about artistry and everybody throws it different. Now, if a dude's got a funky motion, sure, we'll fix it and shine him up. But other than that, let me take what you have, make it really, really good, work on your footwork, work from the ground up, work on your stride length, work on keeping level shoulders and teach you the cerebral part of the game. And I've had a lot of success doing that. So it's been fun. And, and I don't, you know, I don't put my name on any of it. It's just, I kind of like to do my deal and people figure out how to get a hold of me and reach out and we just kind of go train in small groups, maybe one quarterback, maybe two, and go out and cut up. Matter of fact, I got one here in about 35 minutes. I'm training a, uh, a sophomore kid from Salem, Oregon. They drive up about 30, 35 minutes to train. So oh, wow. involved in ball, Mac, and I love it, and I can pay it forward, kind of like you do with a lot of the stuff you're, you're doing on, working on. All right, guys, stick around. Chris Miller is with us, former NFL quarterback with the Falcons and our pal and ESPN Las Vegas football insider Mark McMillan. 
We'll go into the 4 o'clock hour and talk to Chris about his quarterback expertise, especially when it comes to his opinions on this draft class in the 2021 NFL Draft. Mark McMillan on ESPN Las Vegas is brought to you by Weed Cellars. Hit WeedCellars.com for an outrageous selection of wine, bourbon, and beer. And make sure to ask for Weed Cellars at your liquor and grocery store.